the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. Welcome to another episode, our very first of 2014, of the Lions of Liberty podcast, where we strive to advance the ideas of liberty. Now, as my wonderful voiceover guy mentioned, I am your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, if you will, Mark Clare. And look, in order to ultimately, you know, achieve our stated goal to advance the ideas of liberty, we have to find new ways to communicate these ideas to people. Now, if we just sit around talking to each other, it doesn't really do much good. And luckily for us, the free market has provided some amazing technologies by which we can do so, by which we can communicate with each other. I mean, I barely know anything about web design, and yet I have this website, linesofliberty.com. Thanks to our good friend Tommy John at tommyjohnstudios.com. Be sure to check his work out. He designed our wonderful website. I barely knew anything about, you know, hosting this radio show, and yet all I really had to do was go buy a microphone, plug it in, hook it up to my laptop. You know, thanks to some help from our, our editor, John Dobbert, we got a fine listening uh, experience for you here at the Lions of Liberty podcast. So, you know, all it takes is some technology, a little drive, and maybe a friend or two to help you out and get going. The division of labor, you know, a very important thing for any economy. We all need to keep coming up with new ways to spread our ideas, new ways to communicate, and my guest today has a project aiming to do just that. He is a distinguished fellow at the Foundation for Economic Freedom. He is the publisher at Laissez-Faire Books, and he is the CEO of a brand new project called Liberty.me. Jeffrey Tucker, welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. It's really great to be here. I think it's my first time. Am I right about that? It absolutely is. And uh, congratulations are due because it is actually, you're actually the first guest of our podcast for 2014. So we're very, very excited <laughs> about that. And uh, your good friend, uh, Stefan Kinsella, a good friend and fellow Texan, was our very first guest uh, in the history of the show last year. So kind of oh. appropriate. <laughs> Yeah, he is a good friend. You know, uh, we talk about everything. I, I think we more or less agree on, on a lot of things, but, uh, you know, that doesn't really, uh, mean much to say we agree, you know, because, because there's always new issues and new, new things you want to talk about. So we ended up talking every day or every couple of days just about whatever, whatever's going on and sort of bounce ideas off each other. And we learn from each other. It's a good thing to have a colleague and a friend like that. Absolutely. And that's kind of what's important to any movement is just continuing to discuss the ideas with each other and, uh, you know, continuing to advance them. Because how else are we going to figure this stuff out if we don't do it? Yeah, I think you're right. Not one single mind, you know, is capable of sort of sort of generating all truth or something like that. You know, we, we really do need each other. And we feed off each other. I was thinking about this the other day because somebody was really being severely critical of me the other day and it really got me thinking really hard you know like well what's wrong with this criticism or maybe what's right about mm -hmm. it quite often I think our benefactors are our strongest critics in a, in a sense you know uh, just because they help they agitate the mind a little bit and it's out, out of that agitation and out of annoyance sometimes comes your most creative thought Right. I think we're often going to get some of the most, I don't know, I don't want to say legitimate, all, all criticism can be legitimate, but some of the more you know, well thought out criticisms from fellow libertarians or people that already kind of see things mostly our way. But, you know, that's probably where you're going to get some of your best criticisms on the some, you know, kind of the nitpicking, I guess, what some people might call it. Yeah. And it's something of an art. Um, and one thing that's really good at the way social media has matured, I think people are somehow getting a slightly better disagreeing, but being civil at the same time and accepting 
interesting that that not everybody has to agree on everything uh, because I mean that's that's what makes the social media world function. I mean, of course, there are always flare ups and things like that, but but mostly I think it's helping helping to train people to get a little more civil about disagreements that they have with each other. And that's good, I think. Absolutely. And it's definitely an art. It's definitely something to work on. Because when I first started kind of coming into libertarian ideas and thinking that way, it would sometimes you get into a conversation and it just hurts your brain when people don't see things the way you are. And you kind of just want to lash out and, and call them stupid and all this stuff. Really, that's not going to get you anywhere. So. I know. This actually happened to me yesterday, actually. I mean, I woke up slightly embarrassed about it because I'm usually fairly light and I'm able to, you know, fairly good humor and that sort of thing. But then somebody went after me yesterday for, I gave a podcast in interview on Rand Paul in which I kind of just gave my honest feeling about it you know I think we all have some some ambivalence you know about him I think we admire when he does good things and but you know, I don't really have high expectations for any any politician I sometimes feel like people are a little too hard on him you know so I'm trying to navigate this in a podcast especially since you know he's a friend of mine and um, wow you know there's this guy who just went after me and said I had endorsed him and really got under my skin and so I kind of, you know, we had this flame war, you know, and now, then I woke up this morning kind of embarrassed about it. I thought, you know, I could have handled that a lot better. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's hard when something turns into feeling like a personal attack. Like, you know, suddenly uh, you say something nice about Rand Paul and now you're a, you're an evil statist warmonger. Suddenly it's like, whoa. <laughs> And it's hard. It's hard to be civil, maybe when that happens. That's right. There's always an implication that somehow I want a job, or I'm secretly on the payroll, or something. You know, it's all very strange. You know, I mean, you know, which is just r- ridiculous. When we, uh, you know, we've had a few articles criticizing certain positions of his, and then you know we get accused of being secret progressive operatives in the libertarian movement. So it kind of goes oh, both ways. That There's right. always a conspiracy yeah. theorist out there. Is it your opinion that these political topics are particularly prone to sort of these explosions? sort of flame wars and things? Well, sure. I mean, I think that's kind of the way we're trained about politics from the beginning, that it it is this kind of personal thing where we're supposed to get inflamed and choose a, a left or a right side and, and then go at each other. That's kind of the way the media promotes it. That's kind of how we're trained from birth to get, to get into arguments about it all the time. So, sure, I think that's it's kind of been ingrained in us and hopefully, you know, through social media, through the stuff you're doing, the stuff I'm doing, hopefully we can make things just a little more civil and a little less about... I'm so right and you're so wrong and more about, okay, let's actually discuss the reasons we believe I'm so right, you're so wrong. Exactly. You know, and this is something I'm thinking about all the time is I'm kind of, I'm building this integrated platform for, for liberty-minded individuals to kind of communicate and publish and receive information and help crowdsource ideas for taking non-political approaches to freeing our lives. And it's a concern that I have, like, well, we're, we're going to have to foster a kind of culture of tolerance, actually, because... You know, all these libertarians that I'm looking at already, we're going to have thousands of members. It's going to be interesting to see how well they get along, you know, and, you know, when do you have to kind of just toss people out because they just, you know, are so unruly or... I'm hoping that people can learn to have different points of view and learn from each other and not feel like they always have to convince the other person of their particular argument, you know? Right, there is a lot of that. You almost have to feel like you won the argument or so that someone else lost it when really it's really should just be about shaping each other's views over time and trying to present right. kind of logical, passionate viewpoints in whatever the best way to do that is. I definitely want to talk to you more about Liberty.me yep. and your project. But before that, I kind of, I'm a little curious. I asked this of all my guests. How did you first become interested in libertarian ideas? And how did you first become involved with the Liberty Movement? 
you know, if I trace it far back enough, you know, I, I think I land somewhere as a junior in high school, you know, bumping into a nonfiction work by Rand and uh, thinking I was a philosopher, you know, within a matter of days. <laughs> There's that. Um, and then, you know, years later, I think I rediscovered sort of the intellectual world in general as, as a college student in economics. I got really frustrated with my economics classes because I was very uh, optimistic about what economics could teach us about the world. But so much of time in economics classes was spent on sort of pointless mathematics and not really asking the bigger questions. Right. Stuff about aggregate right. demand and all this stuff, and you're like, what, what, is, what is all this? Yeah, right. Where's the big picture? Where's the big meaning? You know, and I wondered. And so then I bumped into a book by Hans Inholtz, and I was really intrigued by it because he, he really talked about economics as if human beings were the decision makers and, and the ones affected most profoundly by policy. And he integrated sort of cultural uh, analysis and social theory into his economics, and it was all about human beings. You know, I thought, well, this is very cool. What kind of economics is this? And I, so I traced, you know, back in the day, you couldn't really just do an internet search, you know. Right. So I was really happy to have, you know, found found the books in the library. And so I just began to read, really, Mises had this just profound effect on me. And, uh, that that was it for me. I just I fell in love with Mises's worldview and his passion, and you know what a dissident intellectual he was, and I just kind of wanted to be part of that. Oh, I I fell in love with the idea of human liberty um, at at some point, and there was no turning back. Now, of course, in the early days, you know, you you start off as uh, believing that you can have limited government, right? And but I I gave that up after a while because I realized that. First of all, there was, there's not really anything that government can do that market can't do better. Anything that needs to be done, right? There's a lot of things governments do that you don't want. They can the do a whole do, lot like, that the market doesn't do, like you know, throw people right. in jail for uh, you know having an herb in their house or stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, it's slaughtering millions and you know that sort of thing. Right, nothing we really um, want so I, to do. That. Right, so I became a kind of like like a dedicated anarchist. The other thing I realized was that. You know, one of the problems with this sort of minarchist worldview is that they imagine in a way that they can control the state. Like, if they want the state to only do one, two, and three, that the state will somehow go along with that. And there's a real disconnect there between what you wish for and what the state's actually going to do in real life. So uh, one of the cases for anarchism, to me, is just just simply for people to recognize their powerlessness over the state. Like, once you create the state, it will pretty much do whatever it damn well pleases in its own interest. And no minarchist intellectual out there can have anything to say about that, you know? So that's an important observation, really. I, th I think of minarchists as their own kind of miniature central planners, in a way. You know, they, they know exactly what the state's supposed to do, and they're going to make it make the state do that. And that's just... That's just unrealistic and ridiculous. Do you so. think that uh, even in a, a quote-unquote, you know, free or private property society, we might still, you know, see the, the voluntary creation of things that might resemble governments, like on a small level, like say if you have people that own 50 adjoining private properties, they all get together, they say, hey, let's chip in for some, you know, private services or, or whatever, police services or a court system, and they just decide to do that. Do you see that that is just as bad and evil as, you know, a, what someone else might call a, a bit, you know, more tyrannical I don't, state? Or? I don't think so. I think it's actually, 
Um, the scenario you're describing it would typically work like this. Like a single developer would buy a huge plot of land and, and put 50 adjacent properties all together under a single covenantal code to kind of increase their property value. And that strikes me as entirely a voluntary creation. I mean, it's, it's in everybody's interest. I mean, you might get annoyed at the rules from time to time, but mostly what's important about that is there's agreement on what the purpose of the community is. And the purpose of the community is to enhance the value of the property as much as possible. So nobody's really being taxed. Everybody's kind of entering into this group agreement. And it's the difference between voluntary and non-voluntary. It's the difference yeah, between so. people coming in and saying, we are the government, you live here, you follow our rules, as opposed to, you know, people voluntarily signing up for a group of rules or, or, or that kind of thing. Hey, here's another example. I was just thinking about this morning because I, I, it's intriguing. I mean, you're seeing all this like, big political debates about, about gay marriage and stuff like that. Well, what if, what if we made it a really strong priority to just get government out of marriage entirely? Like, government has nothing to say about it. No courts marry anybody. The justices have nothing to do with marriage. I mean, just get rid of it. You know, get it completely out of the state's hands. Then you can begin to think, well, what would happen? You know, what would happen to the institution of marriage? And it's pretty clear what would happen. Uh, you would have, well, just as now, you have many, many churches, you know, that are involved in, in deciding, you know, who can get married, who isn't, who is married, who isn't married. But you, but you would have other kinds of associations doing this. I'm sure there would be many different forces in society that are kind of in charge of overseeing you know, what unions look like and what are the rules that govern them, what happens when they break apart, you know, what are the formats of the prenups and this sort of thing. I mean, in other words, marriage would reinvent itself um, on a completely voluntary uh, uh, basis without having the, the government involvement. And I just think that would be a much more peaceful solution than what's going on now. I get really tired of these cultural wars, you know, uh, between the religious right and, you know, the gay rights activists and everything. It's all, it's all kind of tedious. I mean, we could end all that immediately just by giving, getting government out of marriage completely. It doesn't mean that marriage goes away. It just means it becomes less of a, a source of social division. Do you know what I mean? Sure. And it seems like it's just another kind of example when issues like that are pushed to the forefront in the media, in the political debate. And really, it, it, that's not really the stuff we need to be arguing about because all you have to do, like you said, get the government out of it. You'd have some churches that won't marry, you know, won't marry gay couples because they probably don't believe in it. Well, that's fine because you don't need to be in that church. You can, you don't need to be even in a church. You can maybe there would be all sorts of private contractual marriages and, and that kind of thing that aren't even religion based. So, that's right. Everybody would be able to do whatever they want. Yeah, that's right. I mean, like the Catholic Church isn't going to marry two Baptists and, right. and agree to have them be part of their, their court system, you know. So, yeah, you get this kind of perfect unity between the institutions in a society and people's uh, desire for certain kinds of services. Uh, you know, they, I think that's definitely what, what would happen. And that doesn't sound implausible to me. In fact, I was just thinking this morning that Maybe, I mean, I think libertarians have talked about this marriage issue. I think very plausibly they've said that government should get out of marriage, but they haven't really made that big a deal out of it, really. I've been thinking more and more about writing a piece, a practical piece, actually explaining how this would work and trying to push this agenda up front. I think it's an, I think it's an important one, really. I mean, government wasn't even involved in marriage um, this past it, century, really. I mean, it, or maybe, pretty much, pretty much. I mean, I think the first government that got involved in it was post-revolutionary France in the late 18th century. But yeah, 19th century America, you know, it was just churches that married people, or people just, you know, common law or whatever. And then, and then suddenly, yeah, basically in this century, you have this sort of nationalization of an institution.
I don't have anything in front of me, but I do recall reading, uh, you know, a little bit that how they used to use um, marriage licenses to just to deny marriages between blacks and whites, and that's why they kind of invented marriage licenses so they could now decide who can get married and who can not. Oh, that's really interesting. I remember I read a book by Richard Posner some years ago, but I have to dig that up and go through that. But that's very, very interesting. It's kind of similar to uh, gun licenses. There used to not be gun Uh licenses, and then states in the South, you know, started saying, oh, we have to have licenses for guns. And Anybody can get the license, don't worry. But, you know, of course, when when certain black people might sign up for the license, oh, they they all get denied. The white people don't get denied. Suddenly you have kind of a de facto gun control. It's kind of a similar thing. So many laws and restrictions in this country's cultural experience and political history are, are driven by these kind of segregationist impulses. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting when you look back at the history of it, whether it's, you know, minimum wages, you know, had that same origin, this desire to kind of exclude people with a, almost a eugenics uh, kind of desire to get rid of people, cut them out of the labor force so they'll sort of die off and go away. And many other regulations. It's very interesting about marriage, but certainly labor unions were the, were the same kind of thing and I heard a really good lecture the other day at a Students for Liberty conference I was at that talked about the role of jazz in sort of breaking down some of these barriers like when jazz first came along quite often local governments would pass laws that said things like you can't have dancing and food in the same establishment <laughs> and one of the, the driving forces this is the fear was that basically blacks and whites were coming together to dance right. and they had to had to get rid of it yeah, right but it's a good example of how how a kind of cultural evolution and progress and i would include here technological evolution and progress has this effect of kind of breaking down government barriers i think we're seeing a lot of that in our own times you know that the more the private sector innovates the more it's kind of uh, causing the state's grip you know to sort of loosen i mean they're starting to you know panic more and more i mean you see this in the area of intellectual property certainly you know i think we're going to see copyright in five ten years when it's not even going to be effectively relevant for anything it's increasingly less relevant but it's true in many other areas i mean uh, the internet has broken down the communication systems we're seeing uh even more and more the private provision of things like energy you know, with more and more corporations just sort of generating their own power. It's sort of fascinating because they're fed up with the sort of... Wait, are you trying systems. to suggest that we can get even things like energy without the government? <laughs> this is crazy stuff you're talking about here. <laughs> Isn't it funny? You know, in the 20th century, there's this widespread myth that everything worth getting, you know, could only be provided by government. Like, like they really, you know, you know, you think about the, the whole space program, you know, originated with this perception that somehow... Uh, the private sector just couldn't do anything and then it took government to do really cool stuff. I mean, nowadays, I mean, the governments just can't do, I think there's a widespread understanding that governments are mostly incompetent. If you want something done well, you have to turn to the private sector. You know, this is one of the cool things about living now is versus like in the 1950s, I think. And speaking of emerging technology and new ways to do things, that's kind of a good segue to your project, Liberty.me. Well, uh, yeah, it represents kind of the culmination of everything I've ever wanted to do. 